You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hi, my name is Reagan, and today's reading is from Psalm 103. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems you from the life of from the pit, and who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Israel and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as his sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass, they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. going to get into this, calling it the remedy for spiritual amnesia. Let's pray as we prepare. God, uh, uh, we, we thank you for speaking to us and for being present here as we've come together to meet with you today. We thank you that you're not just present here, but that you're active here and you're at work. And so we invite you, as, as each of us are in different places, to come and, and prepare our hearts Uh, till the soil of our hearts that we might receive what your word has for us today and be transformed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, the main character is Jean Valjean. You guys have probably seen the movies or something or seen the play, right? And in the novel, uh, it tells us that Jean Valjean is a famous convict who's served 19 years of hard labor in a prison camp and he's out on parole, he's, he's facing his freedom for the first time, that struggle that we hear stories of, of people being released from prison and not knowing how to function in society, and he's wandering uh, from one end to the next, trying to find a place to stay, but they keep kicking him out after they find out that he's a convict, 
and it's in the middle of winter, and he's trying to sleep on a bench out in the cold, and someone gets his attention and directs him towards the bishop's house. He goes and he knocks on the door of the bishop's house and tells them about himself. And there's this awkward tension as the bishop and some nuns are, are welcoming him into their home and giving him a meal. They're trying to figure out, like, how are we going to be hospitable and generous with this guy? It's like we're afraid that he's going to do something to us, <laughs> this convict in our house. And nonetheless, despite all of that, they choose to invite Jean Valjean to stay the night in their home. And in the middle of the night... He wakes up with plans of stealing the bishop's silver. And in those days, silver was kind of like your life savings. It's where you would put all of your wealth into your... It wasn't just utensils that you would use, but it was where you would put your wealth. And, and he walks past the bishop's, bishop's room on the way to the cupboard and sees him vulnerable, sound asleep. And he kind of has second thoughts. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. But after that inner conflict, he decides, no, I'm, I'm going to move forward with it. And he, he, he's absolutely terrified of being caught, of course. So the adrenaline is pumping. And every little squeak of a door is like a trumpet blast in his ears. He's so afraid that someone's going to wake up. And somehow, though, his fears aren't realized. And he's able to empty all the silver utensils from the cupboard into his bag and escape without waking anyone and no one noticing. And the next morning, of course, they do notice. They, they wake up and, and they're just beginning to sort out, like, how is it that we've been robbed and, and what has happened to us? And as they are having this conversation, the police show up. And who do they have with them but Jean Valjean? They've got him bound both by the wrists and the neck, and they tell the bishop that Jean had claimed that the silver that they found on him had been given to him after he stayed the night at the bishop's house the night before. And of course, they're shocked when the bishop responds, well, yeah, of course, that's right. Totally. Yeah, that's what happened. And, he, and the bishop looks at Jean and he says, but you forgot the candlesticks. <laughs> it's just an amazing scene, right? That was very foolish of you, Jean. And, and he hands them to him, and he says, these are worth over 200 francs. Why did you leave them? And of course, the police are shocked, too. And they're going, what? Hold on. What, are you saying that he told us the truth, that we should let him go? And the bishop replies, yeah, certainly, absolutely. And so they're, they're releasing him from these shackles, and Jean is just as dumbfounded as the police are. He's just kind of standing there frozen, not really sure what to do. And after they're gone, the bishop turns to Jean and says to him quietly, he says, don't forget. Never forget. You've promised to be a new man. And Jean says, I have? <laughs> I, I, didn't know that, I didn't know that I'd done that. And the bishop replies, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. You've, I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. It's just this powerful, powerful moment. And in that moment, Jean Valjean's life is changed forever. And this, friends, is what God's grace is like in our lives. It's 
lavish. It's lavish. It's, it's almost unbelievable. You can sometimes stand there in shock and awe that he would grace us in the ways that he does. When, when we've been caught in the act of betraying God's kindness, he heaps on more kindness. We're astounded, especially at the beginning, especially in those early days or those first moments when you first recognize your sinfulness, your need for God's grace, and, and, and then you cast yourself onto him, onto his love and, and his compassion. When that happens, you're, you're on cloud nine. It's amazing. You're thinking, how could he possibly treat us with such kindness rather than as our sins deserve? But over time, this, this gratitude, it, it can wane. We get either entitled to grace as though we deserve it, or estranged from God's grace as though we are too sinful for it. We are just so quick to forget. And Psalm 103 offers us the remedy to the problem of forgetfulness. And the remedy is remembering. It teaches us that because God is so faithful, we must not forget what he's done. So we're going to look at this psalm with three parts, remembering through praise, remembering his benefits, and then praising through remembering. Okay, so let's begin with remembering through praise. Verses 1 and 2 said, praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name, praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Praise naturally solicits memory, right? It naturally solicits memory. You, you can't uh, praise your child or your coworker or your favorite athlete without automatically thinking of what you're praising them for. You have to have something to say. In, and you've got to be able to remember it in order to do that. And to combat our tendency toward forgetfulness, sometimes we need to preach to ourselves. We need to praise God and preach to ourselves. That's what's happening in this phrase, my soul. This praise is overflowing into preaching. <laughs> it's as though the psalmist, who's in this case King David, it's as though he's trying to shake himself out of whatever forgetfulness he was experiencing and awaken himself to praise. He's saying to his own soul, wake up, wake up. And this is something that we got to do as well. We got to do this sometimes. We need to preach to ourselves. You might be like, that's weird, man. I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor Joel. That's kind of strange. But if you think about this, you do it all the time. Right? You talk to yourself all the time. You just don't really notice it. As, as Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. Amen? Can we just be honest, right? The question is, what are you saying? What are you preaching to yourself on a regular basis? You know, half of what we need to preach to ourselves is simply not to forget. Not to forget God's grace. And we don't know what way David had forgotten. Maybe he had been entitled, which is thinking that we deserve God's grace or that our sin really isn't all that bad, right? And, and this is the sort of forgetting that was very, very common for Israel 
Uh, not just at the time of David, but even from their beginning, after being graciously ransomed by God and, and brought out of slavery in Egypt, Moses warned Israel of how easy it would be to forget. Here's what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have is multiplied, in other words, you're living the dream, right? You're living the American dream. you got all the stuff you could ever want. Everything's going great. What's going to happen? Your heart be lifted up your pride, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You ever get that way? You ever get in this place where things are just going so well that it's as though you don't really need God anymore? You know, He's just, he's just not that necessary. That's entitlement. That's that entitlement kind of forgetting. And maybe that's what led David to forget, but maybe he had become estranged from God. Maybe that's the kind of forgetfulness that he had. Maybe he recognized just how bad his sin was, or he had uh, gotten so fixated on it that he thought there was just no way that God could grace someone like him. This sort of forgetting is actually much more common for Christians today, surprisingly enough especially those of you guys who have been raised Catholic or raised in like fundamentalist Protestant churches. Amen. I've talked to some of you guys. I hear about this all the time. You just, you fixate, you're you're placing the emphasis on you and your shortcomings and not on God and on His faithfulness. But friends, we can't get stuck in these two ways. We can't get stuck on entitlement because in reality... (laughs) The very nature of grace is that we don't deserve it, right? The word grace means unmerited favor. So we can't get stuck on entitlement, and we also can't get stuck on estrangement because in reality, the very nature of grace is that though your sins are many, yes, that's true, in reality, they are no match for God's faithfulness. You need to hear that today. Receive that today. And that is why David is preaching to his soul not to forget all of God's benefits, which are ways that he's shown his goodness, and that's what we're going to look at next, remembering his benefits, remembering God's benefits. And this is pretty much the bulk of this psalm, okay? So we're going to focus on all of these verses, verses 3 through 18, all are kind of in this uh, header of remembering his benefits. Here's what it says. Who, that's God, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. How did, what did he say when he made known his ways? This is where it quotes where God did that, exactly a a verbatim quote from Exodus 34, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. 
He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And then it keeps going as though that wasn't enough. He's done, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field, but then the wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. This should feel completely overwhelming. I hope it does. In the best way possible, though. Overwhelming normally we think of negatively. This should feel overwhelming in the best way possible. Your entitlement or your estrangement should just get pummeled with the goodness of God like an ocean of water dumping on just a little tiny house fire like that. Look at what God has done. Look at it. What did it say? What are some of the ways that we can remember his benefits? He heals all your diseases. This is echoing Exodus 15, 26, when God gave himself this name. He told Israel, he said, I am your healer. I am the Lord, your healer. He heals both physical disease and uh, the greater disease of sin. How else does... Uh, what other benefits do we need to remember? He redeems your life from the pit. He won't let your body rot in the grave, in other words. In Jesus, we're promised that not only will we be healed of all disease one day, but we will get new and sin-free bodies pulled out of the pit of death, never to die again. Amen? That's what we have to look forward to. What else, what other benefits do we need to remember? He satisfies your desires with good things. And what kind of good things is this talking about? Well, the clue is in the eagle analogy in verse 5. The eagles rise up in strength and they soar. And in the same way, God renews us to new heights. He changes us. He transforms us. God satisfies our desires with good things like renewal. He works righteousness and justice, right? This is a promise that though God may not prevent people from being oppressed in this life, although he does do that at times, he will make it right in the end. The scales are in his hands. Just like Israel saw with them redeeming them out of slavery and and God crushing their enemies. God will make it right in the end. The scales are in his hands. They will be balanced. And in the meantime, for those who are oppressed, he also accomplishes his righteousness and justice through his people. What else has God done? He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, some of us here, we might be wondering what God is like. Might be uh, exploring world religions or meditation or crystals or something, right? Just trying to figure out who is God and, and, and what, what is He like. But you need to wonder no more. 
Because God actually spoke for himself. God revealed himself to us. He revealed himself to Moses. And then he proved that how he revealed himself was actually true. Redeeming Israel, fighting for them, defeating them out of the hand of uh, their enemies, defeating their enemies. And he did it in these ways. It describes it in Exodus 34, 6. He's compassionate. So God acts in compassion. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And, And the place where he originally revealed himself to Moses in these ways and described himself in these ways uh, is where he showed Israel what he's like in Exodus chapter 34, 6. And, and here's the thing. You might think, well, man, those sound pretty good. I mean, you know, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's so angry, he's abounding in love. God sounds pretty nice, I guess, you know. And, and, and he is nice, <laughs> But you need to understand how much of an understatement that actually is, okay? Because that, that's bordering on kind of entitlement sort of talk when you actually consider the place where he described himself in this way. What was going on? What, what was happening when God described himself in this way? It wasn't just lip service. This took place right after Israel had committed the ultimate betrayal, Because God had fought for them, he'd redeemed them from slavery, he was bringing them to the promised land that he was preparing for them, he had given them the Ten Commandments, the first of which was, don't worship any other gods, you belong to me, I redeemed you, so you're mine, right, I love you. And what did they do? As someone used to say, like spiritual adultery on their wedding night, while Moses was meeting with God on the mountain. They come together, they bring all their jewelry, melt it down, and turn it into a golden calf. And not only do they worship the thing, they actually give the idol the credit for what the Lord had done. They go, this is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's it's absurd in, in so many ways. And the fact that Israel even existed after that is proof that God is compassionate, that He's gracious, that He's slow to anger, and that He's abounding in love. it's, It's almost unbelievable. Can you think of a time when you betrayed God? Can you think of a time when you bowed down to some golden calf, when you lived for money, or power, or sex, we've all done it. We've all had golden calf moments where we sacrificed everything on the altar of a job or on an accomplishment, on the altar of an ungodly relationship. Think of a time when you have betrayed God in this way. For me, I'm instantly brought back to a time before I was ever a a worship leader where I was leading people in worship through music. I actually worshiped music. It was such a big part of my life, I was willing to give anything to be able to do it. Friend, as you think of that thing or those things, those, those golden calves in your life, do you know that you don't have to carry the burden 
and the weight of that idolatry around with you? Do you know that you don't need to do that because God is compassionate? He's gracious, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in love? Bring those burdens to him today. Cast yourself on him. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that you should never feel guilt, right? In fact, the Bible teaches us that that guilt is a way that God works with our conscience to help lead us to a place of godly grief so that we want to come to Him. It's a way of drawing us to Himself and back to returning to Him. And at the same time, this also doesn't mean that God is so nice that He will never get angry. He will, right? It doesn't say that He's never going to get angry. It says He's slow to anger. God is perfectly righteous and just, and so when people do wrong, God is rightly angry about it. But because He's compassionate, because He's gracious, because He's so loving, He will not harbor His anger forever. In fact, that's another one of the benefits that we're told about. This is good news. It's good news. Instead of harboring his anger forever, which would totally be valid, by the way, right? It would be completely valid for God to harbor his anger forever because sin against an eternal God should have eternal consequences. But instead, what does he do? He doesn't harbor his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. It's another one of the benefits. You know, if he had, we'd all be dead, right? The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. We would all be dead, but God doesn't give us justice. He gives us mercy. Why does he do that? Because he's abounding in love. He can't keep it contained. He loves us, friends. He loves us. He's not just loving. He actually loves us. How much? as high as heaven is above the earth. In other words, it's immeasurable. His love for us is immeasurable for those who fear Him, for those who revere Him, honor Him, and love Him. And not only does He not treat us as our sins deserve, but He actually deals with them. Did you notice that? It's another benefit. He removes our sins from us. This is how he remains just while being merciful. He removes our sins from us. How far does he remove them? As far as the east is from the west. In other words, as far as anything could be removed from anything, he removes it. To the point where in Jesus, we see that he came to take the punishment for our sins upon himself. That's the length that God is willing to go to in order to break down the barriers that stand between us and Him. His love is so great. His love is it's like a perfect father. It's another one of His benefits. He shows compassion to those who fear Him. Now, obviously, none of us here who are fathers are perfect fathers. We fall short, we recognize that. None of us here have had a perfect father. But can you at least imagine one? Can you imagine what a perfect father would be like? Well, he would be compassionate. 
And our heavenly Father is like that. He's compassionate. In other words, He has pity on us. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. We, we want Him to have pity on us. He remembers, it said, that as a result of sin, humanity has borne the curse that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And our Father remembers that reality, and He takes pity on us. Why? Because our lives are short. They're like grass that dies off and, and blows away. Like flowers that look beautiful and then they just fall apart. He has pity on us. And I probably don't even need to point this out as I'm saying that. Some of you guys are automatically thinking of our sister Lynn who passed this week. I've talked with a number of you guys already this morning who, as you're grieving, as we are grieving her death, and we were remembering that loss because she was such a gift. She was such an amazing person, right? She was such a good, as, as I was talking to Kim this morning, such a good representative of Jesus and his light and his love. But even as you're remembering Lynn and you're grieving her death, Remember, God has compassion on us. He has pity on us. He doesn't want us to die. Think about that. He doesn't want us to die in our sin, in, in, which leads to death. This is the lot that we have all chosen by choosing sin. But God doesn't want us to die. And yet, because we do, because we do choose to sin. Our lives are short. And sometimes the brevity of our lives might make them seem to us like they're meaningless. But remembering our Father's compassion for us gives us confidence in this life that our lives do have meaning because He has compassion, but also it gives us confidence and hope for the one to come. That's why we grieve Lynn's death with hope. And so we don't just have hope for her or for us as Christians, but we also have hope for generations to come. Because as the psalm said, from everlasting to everlasting, in other words, from age to age or, or forever, His love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children. This is telling us that the Lord never lets us down. He never will. No one who wants to enjoy His love will ever have any lack of it. You hear that? No one who wants to enjoy God's love will ever have any lack of it. Not you, not your kids, not your grandkids, not if you don't have kids, not your friends' kids. No one. For generations, we can see that God's steadfast love and faithfulness endures. And you know how the Bible tells us that we get to do this, that we get to enjoy God's love. You know how it tells us to do that? Uh, in verses 17 and 18, it tells us what the means are of enjoying God's love. And this says this in many other places. How do we receive God's love? You know, there's a, there's a misconception in Christianity that we receive God's love just sort of in a vague way, like it's just sort of a feeling. And yes, we can feel it, but it's more than that. We experience God's love, it's said, by keeping His covenant and remembering to obey His precepts. 
The Bible teaches us that obedience, it's like an IV of God's love. It gives us life. There's so much life in obeying God. And not forgetting all His benefits, as verse 2 told us to do, it actually helps us to not forget to keep His commands, as verse 18 tells us. God's love, as we receive it, it actually leads to our love for Him, which leads to our obedience. Friends, that's the last one. I hope as we've gone through this gigantic list of benefits that God gives to us, I hope that you are completely overwhelmed. I hope that you can barely keep up with God's goodness to us because there's just so much of it. And I hope that you can see that when we remember His benefits, it's actually impossible for us to feel entitled When we remember His benefits, it's it's impossible for us to feel estranged, which brings us back to the beginning, which was praise, right? The beginning, it was remembering through praise, and at the end, it's praising through remembering. As we've not forgotten all of His benefits, (laughs) at the end of the psalm, the people of God, they've remembered all these things, they've recounted all these things, and they've praised Him to the point where all the praises of earth are rising up to heaven. Verses 19 through 22, praising through remembering. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts, His servants who do His will. Praise the Lord, all His works everywhere in His dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is what my friends and I used to call a praise explosion. okay? It's a pretty handy word. Uh, and and it, it's a little bit of a picture, a little bit like last week's psalm, actually. Although in that case, the psalm took us down from heaven to earth, this one actually ascends up to heaven from the earth. So I want you to picture the people of God recounting all of His benefits, everything that we've just explored. All these things, it's just this overwhelming amount of goodness and and kindness that God has shown to us. And then as God, the King of the universe, takes His seat on His throne, the praises of heaven just explode, just blow up. The the angels and the spiritual beings, the the heavenly hosts, in other words, the armies of heaven, shouting God's praise. It's, It's louder than the loudest concert that you've ever been to. It's like shattering your eardrums, except for it just feels so good. (laughs) Because it's just, it's just so gorgeous, these praises. Every being everywhere is responding to what has been remembered about our good God. They're responding to what He's done. And because God is so faithful, we must remember what He's done. Israel remembered their redemption, right? Just like they were ransomed from slavery to Pharaoh by the blood of their Passover lamb. We, church, we Christians, we have been ransomed by, of slavery to sin, from slavery to sin, by the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. We get to experience the God whom this psalm remembers when we remember that he came to us in the person of Jesus and all the greatest joys of his ways, all these benefits, 
have been handed down to us. They've been delivered to us from our deliverer. And so as spiritual amnesiacs, we've got to preach this beautiful message of the gospel of hope to ourselves, to each other, so that we remember the amazing gift that it is to know him and to love him and to serve him, which will then overflow into even more praise. Two community group questions for you guys this week. When it comes to forgetting God's grace, are you more prone to entitlement or estrangement? And how does the God that we see in Psalm 103 change that? Let's pray. Father, help us to see you as you truly are. Help us to be overwhelmed with your goodness and your kindness. Help us to be overtaken and and all of these these ways that we can forget, this estrangement, this entitlement, help all of it just to kind of fall by the wayside and be overwhelmed with your goodness as we remember you. And God, transform us by your grace to want that experience of your love as we walk in obedience towards you, the God who's redeemed us. And now as we respond to you in this service, help us to do that. Fill us with your spirit for that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.